that, but um, in the meanwhile, I'm also looking forward to Revelation 14. We've been going through Revelation for many, many weeks now, and Revelation 13 from last week, it was kind of a dire picture of this beast, of the dragon, and then he kind of calls forth this beast out of the ocean, and it was a very dark picture, a dark picture of the beast or the governments of the world, dark picture of the beast and the world's ideologies and people giving themselves over to the beast and taking the mark of the beast, and, and then it ends with this number, 666, incomplete, incomplete, incomplete. You know, if I had dreams like this, that would be a very bad dream, And yet now we come to Revelation 14, and it is a wonderful dream, a reality, a picture of what's to happen in the future. So go ahead and turn Revelation 14 with me. Revelation 14, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 5, and we do this from once in a while. Uh, I want you to stand. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is God's holy, inspired Word, so let's stand together to hear God speak to us today. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a loud voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. It is these who've not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these visions of reality that Jesus, you gave to John for us. God, so often we we feel like what we experience is all bleak, and sometimes it seems futile and difficult, and we wonder, will we endure? Will we be able? Can we withstand? And yet, Lord, you give us these glimpses of the true reality in your word of what is to come, the true reality for all those who are standing in you. So God, thank you. I pray that you would encourage our hearts, that you would enliven our minds, that you would give us a holy passion for you, that you would rekindle that desire to live for you in all things, that you would give us endurance and hope through this vision of the future. God, I pray that you would give us a new song and that, Lord, you would inspire us to sing for you as a result. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I still remember when I was younger, I used to have a few recurring bad dreams. Anybody here have recurring bad dreams when you were younger? I had, I had several different ones. One was about bats. I won't go into detail there. It was creepy. Another one about these house and these rooms, and I'd go in all these different rooms, and, and it was always scary things behind these doors, and it was the same dream time after time, and I would kind of dread it. Sometimes we can feel that way about Revelation as if it's a bad dream. It's a bad picture. 
Last week, as I mentioned in Revelation 13, we see this, this imagery of, of the dragon, and it, and it seems like a dragon is ruling over the earth, and in a sense he is, and he stands on the seashore, and, and he kind of conjures up this beast, the governments of the world, to do his bidding, and then and you see this other beast that comes up that prophesies, that speaks falsely about reality, and this other false beast is kind of the ideologies of the world, and the whole world is given after the beast, and everything goes away. Everyone goes to worship this beast. Those who don't are put into captivity and put to death, and yet we see at the same time there's an inkling of hope. Although the dragon is waging war against the church in Revelation 12 and Revelation 13, what we're meant to see is that we have hope for endurance. We saw in Revelation 13, verse 10, where it says that this, it's, it's aimed at encouraging, at encouraging the endurance and faith of the church. And you think, well, how in the world is that picture encouraging? And yet we saw a glimmer of that. It says, well, for those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And as you read chapter 12 and 13, you might wonder, how can we endure? How will we do this? What does that look like? Will it really be true? Do you ever ever feel that way? When you look around at the world and you see the darkness around and you see the growing evil and, and to a large degree our world is becoming more and more evil at a rapid pace. We're living in the end times like John was living in the end times. We continue to live in the end times. We don't know when Christ will return but things aren't getting better. We see that things get worse. And at times you wonder how can we endure? You ever feel that way? You ever wonder, how how can I endure? There's so much yuck. There's so much suffering and pain. There's so much wrong. There's so much badness. How can we endure? Will we really stand? And, And you begin to doubt the fact that you'll be able to stand. You wonder, will I really be able to stand? And some days... Frankly, I don't feel like I'm going to be able. Some days I feel like giving up, and I'm, I think that's common to all of us. Some days you feel like, I don't, I don't think I can do this anymore. I don't think I can stand. I don't know how I will stand. I don't know how I will endure. Will I really endure? Because I don't think I can. And it's just at that point in Revelation, it's just at that point in our lives when we need to look up and see a vision of what truly is. And so we have that here in Revelation 14. John has this wonderful dream, this vision of the future when all that is not yet will be already. When all that is not yet in the moment will already be. So what does Jesus reveal to John for the sake of encouraging his church to endure at the beginning of this chapter? We have this wonderful contrast, this, the dragon in 12, the end of 12, and all 13, the dragon stands on the sand of the seashore. In Scripture, sand's always shaky ground. And yet now we see at the beginning of this passage, where's Jesus standing? Look down your Bibles. Where's Jesus standing? He's standing secure on Mount Zion. He's standing secure on the true Mount Zion. What's, what's that image of? It's the image of it, the devil might look like he's reigning and ruling, but Jesus really is ruling and reigning above all. He's standing secure on Mount Zion. His word's the final one. And those who stand with him will never die. And yet, as you see that, you think, well, if Jesus, if John, were, you're calling us to endure in chapter 13, how and how do we know? Well, we see in Revelation 14 that the big idea, the main thing that we see, the main point that we see in Revelation 14 is that those who are in Christ will stand. Those who are in Christ will stand 
because he stands for them. Those who are in Christ will stand because he stands for them. Do you see that? We're not alone. We're not standing alone on Mount Zion. Jesus is standing on Mount Zion, and all those who he's brought along are standing there with him. And that is a picture of the fact that those who are in Christ will stand because he stands for them. Revelation 7, we saw the the full and complete number of his people, this this number that was used to represent fullness or completeness, 12,000 times 12,000 is 144,000, this This figurative language of all those who belong to the Lamb who are not marked by the beast. In Revelation 7, we saw that God told his angel, seal them. And now we see the ultimate deliverance of those who are sealed in chapter 14, where those who trusted in the beast in chapter 12 and 13, they're marked by this threefold incompleteness as we learned, this incomplete, incomplete, six, 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 the number of man trusting in man, trusting in the world's systems, And yet here now we see this God's full and complete people in contrast to that. The 144,000 who have been marked not with the beastly number of incompletion, but marked with the complete and perfect name of Jesus, the name of the Father. God's people, those who take his name as their own, the divinely marked and sealed as members of his redeemed people, secure in him forever. How are we to endure? We're to see that this is us, all those who have trusted in the Lamb. The people of the Lamb will stand on Mount Zion with the victorious, risen Lamb. So John sees the people of God who are sealed as already delivered. And so our first confidence, the first way that Jesus would have us see that we can have confidence to stand, to endure, is that we stand with his name. That's what we see in this passage. We stand with his name. That's the first way that we know we can, we will endure is because why? We see this picture of what, what is, what will be, and we're standing with his name. All those who've been redeemed, the perfect number, not, not one person lost, all the complete number of God's people are standing with his name. Now, in my previous life prior to being a pastor, I don't mean reincarnation, I'm just talking about what I used to do for a living, by the way, so don't worry there. And what I used to do before, I used to get to work around a lot of military people, and there was something that stood out about a certain group of ex-military people, and that was the Marines. I worked around, you know, all kinds of guys from different branches of the military, with Air Force, uh, with the Army, with the Navy, Coast Guard, different people like that, and yet the, the Marines were unique, and um, I don't mean that as a joke or an insult. They were very unique, and there was something special about that. And um, I remember asking the guys, what is it? And they were like, well, once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine. And, and although the other armed forces, there's veterans, there's something unique about the way the Marines view things. And, and it was a brotherhood, and it, and it was an obligation to each other. And there seemed to be, you know, covering each other's backs 20 years later when, they, when none of them were Marines any longer. It defined them. It shaped them. It became part of their identity, In Jesus, we have a greater brotherhood. We've been given his name, a name above all names, a name that's that's far greater, that unites us far more than than any earthly group. In Jesus, we have a brotherhood, a true brotherhood. We bear his name, but it's, it's more than that. We have something where we don't just back each other up, where we have each other's backs, where that is true. We all bear his name. We're in this together. That's good. But what we see here in Revelation is that our champion is is standing victorious. He's, he's defending us. But not only that, we see this, this picture of our champion. He's also our general. 
And the, and the armed forces, the general does not typically go out in front, and yet Jesus, he is out in front. He's standing victorious. He's defending and protecting us himself. But it's far more than that even. He's not just a champion. He's not just a general. He is the creator of all, the perfect son of God. He's the one who keeps us and has our back. He's the one whose name we bear. The few, the proud, hopefully the humble, those who bear the name of Jesus. And the name we have is the name of Jesus, and the name of God the Father, and it's more than just a brotherhood. It is, speaks of the fact that we belong to the family of God that he's adopted. It speaks of fatherhood as well. I love the way that James Hamilton puts it. He says, everything in this depiction, he says, everything in this scene, everything in this depiction is meant to motivate endurance. Those who are in battle, behold, those who have overcome. They see those who have received the promises. They see the conqueror of Mount Zion with his army ready to wage the messianic war. They hear the song being sung before the Father in heaven. All this inspires us to seek to be faithful, to endure to the end, to overcome. Christian, you belong to Jesus. You belong to God. You've been marked with his name. You've been sealed for the day of redemption. You don't have to wonder, will I endure? Will I be able in those moments, you need to look at Revelation 1 through 5 and say, yes, by faith, this is me because I bear his name. What it means to bear God's name is that he'll never give up on you. He's marked you and stamped you as mine. You belong to him. Let me ask you, are you more powerful than God? Are you able to remove yourself from God's belonging? no matter how hard or how bad it will get for us here on earth. And it may. And it says that in Revelation 13, some are destined to be slain. Some are destined to be taken captivity. And, and for who, all those who God has planned, that, that, that will happen. But the dragon doesn't have the final say. You know has the final say? God the Father, God the Son. He stamped us. He saved us. Revelation 13 11, you, you saw this, this second beast was a counterfeit lamb. He had two horns like a lamb. And a beast who people look to for salvation. And yet now we see the true Lamb of God, the eternal Lamb who is standing with his people on Mount Zion, the city of God. Back in Psalm 2, there was a prophecy about the time when the Messiah would return. In Psalm 2, it says in Psalm 2, verse 6, As for me, I have set, this is God speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And now in Revelation 14, we see the fulfillment of that. From Hebrews this Mount Zion we see that John is encountering in this vision. It's a part of the city, the living God, the new Jerusalem. And in Hebrews 12, it says, but you have come. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This is, this is you, believer. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, this is you, no matter what it looks like in the times here on earth, there's a kingdom that's above all other kingdoms, the kingdom of our Lord and God. And Jesus, the Lamb, stands over all those kingdoms. And our second confidence we see in this passage to endure and stand is that we sing, we stand singing the song of the redeemed. We stand because he stands. We stand because we've been marked by his name. We, we stand singing. We stand singing the song of the redeemed. No matter what it looks like here on times on earth, there's a kingdom above all other kingdoms, and Jesus stands over all those kingdoms, and that's what we sing about. 
when John sees the lamb standing as victorious, he looked down at verse 2. Here's what he hears. He sees something. He sees Jesus standing, and so thereby the saints stand, but he hears something too. Look down at verse 2. He says he hears this, this heavenly song, this voice from heaven. And he says it's like the sound of a heavenly host singing as if with one voice. I was thinking about this past summer, we, we got a chance to go to the lower falls at Yellowstone, and, and they're about double the height of, of Niagara. And so when they crash, it makes a loud, roaring noise, 308 feet flowing over this cliff and just standing there, listening to the sound of this crashing torrent of water. You get a sense of the immense power of the water. Then you look out across this, this crashing waterfall beside you and you see that it's carved through this bedrock. It's carved this giant canyon. It's powerful. The power of the water is, is too powerful to withstand. And, and you look down and this, these plumes of mist come up hundreds of feet high almost to where you're standing and, and the, the sound is almost deafening and you think, boy, what would it be like to be at the bottom of that waterfall? It'd be crushing. You know, how silly would that be? You know, I've, I've, I wondered about Niagara. Oh, maybe, maybe somebody could make it. You know, a few people have made it over that. There's one at Yellowstone, there's no way. If you made it over, there's no way you'd survive because it's too powerful for any human to withstand. And if the carve through the rock in the canyon of the Yellowstone of John says, I hear this sound, this voice from heaven. It's like the roar of many waters. Beautiful imagery. And he says, I also hear this heavenly voice. It's not just this roar of many waters, but it's like the sound of thunder. We had a storm so intense this summer, the foundation of the house, all the windows, the floor, they seemed to reverberate. The windows shook. This reverberating deep bass of thunder, and that's the kind of power and intensity that John hears. He sees Jesus and standing with the redeemed, and then he hears their song, and it is powerful. It's roaring, it's thundering. And yet he says something else, this third description of this voice. Look down at verse 2. He says, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. What, is he, what do you mean, John? Is it, a, is it a roar? Is it a thunder? Is it the sound of harps? Well, it's all the above. And what he's, what he's describing here is this, this volume, this unbelievably powerful singing, this voice that thunders and shakes the foundations, and yet it has the beauty as if a myriad of harpists is play, are playing. Now, the closest I could get to imagining that was Remembering back to the first time I got to hear the National Symphony Orchestra play in a small theater in Washington, D.C. with a few hundred other people. It was kind of an enclosed space and they opened up and they opened up with Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and it was intense. That bum, 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 bum. And then it had this, this beautiful da, 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 da. And then it, bum, 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 and it would come in and... <laughs> It was loud, it was majestic, and it carried you away with the beauty. In, in a far greater way, John's describing that, this, this roar, this loudness, this intensity, this beauty. And what do we see here? We see that the church's voice, although in Revelation, in, in, in the churches in Revelation, these seven churches in Revelation, they, they seem small, they seem insignificant, like their voice did not matter. Sometimes today, it seems our voice is small and insignificant, like it doesn't matter. And yet we see this image here of reality. The church's voice won't be removed. 
Even though it might seem small and weak here on earth, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 35.10. He wrote of the praise that would be brought at the end of times in Zion. Isaiah 35.10, it says, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And that's the song that we can confidently sing, not only in that day, but now. Remind ourselves what's true. There, we have everlasting joy already on our heads. We, we will obtain gladness and joy. We've been given a foretaste of gladness and joy, and one day sorrow and sighing will flee away, and the full number of God's redeemed people through all the ages will sing the praises of God. No longer quiet, no longer small, no longer the voices being trumped by the world. It says they were singing this new song. Look in verse 3. A new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000. Now, now listen to these words. Who had been. What's that next word? Read it out loud. Redeemed. Who had been redeemed from the earth. This powerful voice was singing a new song, a tremendous joy of redemption. That's the song that we've been given to sing. Believer, don't forget you've been redeemed. And, and look at that. It says no one could learn it except those who have been redeemed. And isn't that interesting? No one could learn this song except those who've been redeemed. No one can pretend. There will be no pretenders on that day. There'll be nobody who's claiming that all roads lead to Christ. No, the old roads don't lead to God. This is an exclusive song, not for Buddhists, not for Mormons, not for Jehovah's Witnesses, Hindus, not unbelievers, only those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But all those who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb learn this song. Have you learned the song? If you're here today, I don't assume you have. I don't assume that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. With a group this size, I assume there's some who aren't sure, they haven't made their minds up. This song is a picture of the future where only those who've been redeemed, who've trusted in Jesus, sing this glorious song. It's our hope and desire that you would place your faith in Jesus if you're sitting here today, now. So this could be you. It's interesting, he says, the song is learned. The more we learn about redemption... The more we learn about the Redeemer, the more we sing. Now, that's instructive for us here as well. This song is a learned song. We, we learn what it means to be redeemed. Do you know what it means to be redeemed? I, I'd encourage you, if you're struggling with singing a song of joy, learn about what it means to be redeemed. Learn about what you need to be redeemed from. Meditate on what God have you delivered me from. And Lord, what does it mean to be redeemed? Believe you, if you're not singing, stop and meditate and ask God to reveal to you all the sin, the hopelessness, the futility about the kingdom of darkness you've been bought out of. And, and let God reveal to you what you've been redeemed to. It's a song that's worthy to be sung before God and the heavenly host we see and we sing all the redeemed singing it. I think part of the song, we don't know exactly what the words are, it's intentionally Hidden is a new song, but I think part of it's probably in Revelation 5 9 says they sang a new song saying, Worthy, 
Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's the kind of songs that the Apostle Paul talks about in Colossians when he commands the believers, says, let the word of Christ. How do we sing the song of the redeemed? We learn it. How do we learn it? Well, here's what Paul tells us in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another. Now listen, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with what? Thankfulness in your hearts to God. Everyone who's been purchased by Jesus will sing and learn to sing this song. And even the angels, it tells us in 1 Peter 1, says even the angels long to look into these things. This is not the song of angels, this is the song of the redeemed. That's what John heard. And what he saw was those who sang were undefiled and blameless. How can we be sure we will stand? How can we be sure we'll endure? Because Jesus is standing with us, because Jesus enables us to stand, because he's given us the song of the redeemed, and how else will we be sure that we'll endure confidently to the end and stand? It's that we stand undefiled. I don't know about you, but I don't feel undefiled sometimes. (laughs) I remember um, the Campbells can tell you the story. They laughed at me. Um, We were on vacation with them many years ago in the Outer Banks, and... Um, Noah and I went down to the beach early and, and we saw this giant loggerhead turtle. It was probably about that long, about that tall, about this big around. It was the biggest loggerhead turtle I've ever seen. And it was lying there on the beach. The only thing about this one is that it had no head. Um, it was this massive giant turtle, this loggerhead turtle. Each leg was as big as like my thigh. There were huge round legs. And, and yet the front, whole front was missing looked like the only thing that big actually from the biologist we talked to later was a great white just bit in the front of it off. I mean, it would have had to been jaw like this big around to bite that thing off. And so we were a little amazed and we hung around and then when the biologists got there, they wanted to dissect it. They wanted to crack the shell open and they were going to pull the whole thing apart and dissect it. And and they said, hey, do you want to help? I'm like, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I want to see what's inside that thing. And so we... Uh, this might be something wrong with me, all right? I get that. But I like, I like seeing the, the beautiful mystery of creation and all the intricacy of what God's done. And so, hey, what other time will I be able to rip open a loggerhead turtle, right? I don't do that. I, I'm not that guy. <laughs> so they, they cracked the thing open, and, and it smelled really bad. Um, you know, as soon as they opened up the guts, and they did that kind of stuff, but I'm helping, I'm in there, we're in there together, Noah and I are, and, and everybody else is kind of separated from us gone down the beach, the whole family, everybody else is like, I don't know, 50 yards away, and we're just down here with the biologists there, and they said, hey, you want to you wanna help look at the stomach contents? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> and, um, and they're like, hey, you want to look at the intestines? Yeah, sure, and so I, I'm standing like way over there, Noah's way over here, it's, it's got to be 50 feet, and we're, we're like pulling the stuff out of the intestines, and they're really long, and it's just amazing, and um, the only thing I didn't realize is that um, turtle, du- turtle guts, they don't wash off so easy. Um, I, I washed and I washed and I washed and, and it, the smell would not come off. And I'm, it's something about the fat and the smell and it, it binds. It binds to your skin. And so every time I ate for the next three days, I'm not kidding, for three days, all I could smell was turtle guts. And what seemed really cool at first did not seem so cool with every meal. Where I put my hand up, I was like, oh my gosh, my hands just reeked of turtle guts. 
which by the way is not pleasant. It's a mixture of not only rot, but fish and a, everything else you can imagine. All right, I'll, I'll leave it there. All right, so it smelled for days, and, and every, they kept laughing because every time I breathed in my nose, all I could smell was was rotten turtle, and um, I couldn't wash it off. It eventually did. The picture we have in Scripture of our sin, of our defilement, is, is far more putrid, far worse than that. We couldn't wash our sin off. Our sin was even greater because it wasn't just on the surface binding to our skin. It's at the very core of who we are. Every cell is defiled. Every piece, every part of us, the way we think and act and feel our desires is defiled by sin. And yet here we see this beautiful picture of the saints who are undefiled. I I need that picture. Because so often I smell and I breathe in and I smell the stink again. We need to be washed in the blood of Jesus because only his blood can make us clean. Only his blood removes the stains. And I love the, the imagery here. It's this is spiritual, as Grant Osborne says, a spiritual character, the state of the redeemed, is given in detail both as a model and a warning to the Christians of the seven churches who are besieged by Jewish and Roman persecution as well as by false teachers. It's also a model for us who are besieged by the world systems and government and, and ideology and false teachers. And yet we see this picture of purity. Now, verse 4, admittedly, it can be difficult at times because for us, we don't think of ourselves in figurative language very often. And yet all of Revelation is is figurative, it's symbolic language here. And and if you read verse 4, it can be challenging. You mistakenly and literally read as if it's only male virgins. You're like, what's up with that? But then if you look in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament and new, scriptures shed light on John's symbology and Scriptures like in Lamentations 2.13 when it says, What can I liken to you that I might comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? Speaking of God's people as a virgin. It's those who are undefiled, who are pure and undefiled, like virgins before Christ. And often Scripture uses that kind of figure of language to speak metaphorically about our relationship with Jesus. In Revelation 3.4, Jesus addressed the church in Sardis. He says, You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled or defiled. The same word we have here is defiled, undefiled. They've not soiled their garments. They'll walk with me in white. They're they're worthy. Here the church is preserving itself. It's keeping itself as a virgin for Jesus. And what does that mean for us to see? It's in direct contrast to what we see all throughout Revelation of, of the world going after this prostitute harlot, Babylon. In contrast, the church keeps itself for Christ. Those who are unadulterated. Matthew 25, 1, Jesus told the parable of the ten virgins. The kingdom of heaven, he says, will be comparable to the ten virgins who took their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom. There are all of those who are in the kingdom of heaven are like virgins. What does that mean? It means that men and women alike, they're presented to those who are chaste, who have kept themselves from spiritual adultery. They're waiting for the marriage to their Lord. Paul uses the same kind of language in, first, in 2 Corinthians 11 when he writes, I'm jealous, he says, for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband so that in Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. 
But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Paul said it was like he was their spiritual father and he betrothed the church to Jesus. And his goal was to present them pure and spotless, undefiled, sanctified, blameless in behavior. Churches of Revelation were tempted to give in to idolatry just like we are tempted today to give in to idolatry. And yet we have this wonderful hope that we ultimately will remain undefiled because he's made us undefiled. He's made us pure. We will endure all those who don't follow after the spiritual harlotry of the world. Don't go after idolatry and false gods so often resulting in sexual immorality. That's why he uses this kind of language. So believer, how are you doing in that regard? Where is your mind? What are you living for? It's both meant to be a model and to show us as well what will be, but it's also meant to be a motivation of saying, are we living this way? Are we living in a chaste way? Are we living in a way? Now, I'm not talking about husbands and wives foregoing marital relations. That's not what this passage is talking about. What it's talking about is living in a way where we're not going after the idols of the world, where we're not giving in to Babylon, where we're not bowing down. We're not using subtle language that, that Babylon uses in giving in to idolatry. But no, we're... Standing with Jesus, remaining pure because we've been sealed, because he's made us pure. We look again and we see that we have another confidence to endure and stand. The fourth confidence we have to endure and stand as we stand by following Jesus says, it's these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. The lamb is Jesus and he leads his people by his word. He says that my sheep know my voice. Do you know the voice of Jesus? It's these who follow after the lamb. Are you one of these? Are you listening? Are you following? If you are, this is you. His voice leads us in his paths away from idolatry into truth. Jesus said, if anybody would follow after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What does he mean? Deny your own desires. Deny the earthly things. Deny idolatry. Take up your cross. Die to yourself and follow Jesus. How are you doing on that front, believer? This is both the picture of endurance and also the means for endurance. You listening for his voice, remaining in Jesus, following Jesus. We endure because we are his, and because we are his, we're able to endure. Because we are his, he makes us able to endure and follow. And because we endure and follow, we can be sure we're his. Is that, you tracking there? But it doesn't start with our following. It doesn't start with our actions. It starts with him redeeming, putting his name on us, sealing us. Then it enables us to do the things we see here. It makes us pure, enables us to be blameless, enables us to follow him. And by following him, we can be sure that we are his and we'll be here. So Christian, is there any area of your life where Jesus is calling you to endure, to remain faithful, to not trust in the world or the powers that be, to turn from idolatry to follow him? How do we endure? We endure because we've been redeemed and bought. How do we endure? We, we endure because we've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. You didn't redeem yourself. You didn't buy yourself. You had no ability to do it. Naked and poor, wretched and blind. The passage does not say all those who've earned their salvation. It doesn't say those who 
have been redeemed by our own self-efforts. We couldn't secure our own salvation. We stand blameless. Jesus paid to bring us out of the kingdom of darkness into light where we could never find our own way. He delivered us from the ownership of the devil. He made us his own. I love the way that James Hamilton puts it. He says, if you're redeemed, you're redeemed for God and the Lamb. Let me encourage you to be what you are. Do you believe the gospel? If you've been redeemed, you've been redeemed for God. Live like you're an offering consecrated to God. As Paul puts it, living like a sacrifice. Is that the way you think of yourself? Is that true of you, Christian? You've been redeemed as first fruits. Now for us, that word first fruits doesn't have a lot of meaning often because we don't use it anymore, but it could have two different meanings in the Old Testament. First fruits meaning an offering made to God so that they would plant a crop and the crop would grow and the first part of the crop they would designate to God, they worship him. But I think this is the second picture we see where a priest, he was designated to make bread for the holy place, the place right outside the holy of holies that, that only the priesthood could go into and they would make this bread and they would set it aside. And, and when they were making the bread, they took this first fruits, they called that the first fruits, this first portion of this lump of dough and they took that and they set it aside and it was consecrated or holy, designated especially for God and all the other dough was for common uses to be eaten. And so we've, we've been redeemed as a kind of first fruit, set apart for God, put into his holy place. In chapter 13, we saw the darkness of the beast and the death the beast brings. And here in 14, we see this the veil of reality pull back and, and it's not on the beast anymore. We're standing on Mount Zion with the Redeemer. And he's the one who's victorious, the song of redemption. All of his people sing, cannot be silenced. It's meant to show us that it's not the dragon, it's not the beast, it's not government, it's no power, no ideology can shut up or stop this song any more than we can stand underneath the lower falls in Yellowstone. Our fifth, our, our final confidence that we'll endure and stand is that we stand blameless. We stand blameless. When I was younger, until I probably hit my 20s, I was really skinny. Um, and, 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 you know, that's the wonderful thing about that. I mean, when you're a little kid, you, you know, it's great to be skinny. And I remember... I was, um, once went out in the wintertime, you know, I was always underweight. I was always trying to gain weight as a kid. I would, I would eat a lot of food. And I remember one time in the wintertime, we went sledding, and I had this huge puffy snowsuit on that somebody had given me, and it made me look like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. It was, it was great. I loved it. And um, went down this, this hill, and I got up, and some other kids tried to make fun of me. They were like, hey, fat Matt. And I, I was like, Really? That's pretty funny, and I laughed. Um, it didn't affect me because it's not who I was. It's, it's, they couldn't legitimately call me fat. I was like 30 pounds underweight. You could count every rib in my body if you peeled the snowsuit off. I mean, the snowsuit off of me, and you know, it was just so it was just kind of comical. It didn't stick. It didn't make any difference to me, and so I laughed. And they were like, they were confused why it didn't bother me. They were trying to mock me for being fat, and I'm like, that's just sure, and. You might be mocked by the devil as being full of blame, being fat with blame, and you can laugh and say, no, that's not who I am. I'm blameless. That's the truth. The truth is 
Those who sing the song are blameless, and their blamelessness is the reason that no lie is found in their mouths. Their blamelessness is not the result of not lying. Their, their truthfulness is the result of the redeemed being blameless, and we see that we stand blameless before our Messiah, blameless on Mount Zion. And then it's this, the fruit of this blamelessness we see is that they speak the truth about Jesus, speak the truth about who he is. In contrast to Revelation 3, when he talked to the church in Philadelphia, and he says that now those are the synagogue of Satan. They said they're Jews, they're not, they lie. Now we see the true Jews, the true Jerusalem, the true people of God. The redeemed, they tell the truth by witnessing about Jesus when faced with pressure to worship the beast. They don't go along with idolatrous lies because they know who they are. They don't conform to the culture. They don't call evil good and good evil like the culture around us does with language calling evil things as if they are good and good things as if they are bad. But the redeemed, there's no lie in their mouth. Christians, with any lies about yourself you've been believing, any lies about others, any lies about the world, any, any lies about Jesus found in your mouth, any area where God's calling you to Remember you're blameless and then tell the truth because you've been made blameless. Where did God have you speak up and declare the redeeming truth of Jesus? This is a call to endure by seeing the end the way it really is, how it really will be. Camera's kind of panned out from Revelation 12 and 13 where it's zoomed in on the, the beast and his people here on earth and then it zooms out and you see, oh, here's the reality above all of that is Jesus standing and we are standing with him. No one can take us away from him. No one can change who you belong to. You're protected, you're sealed, you're kept, you're redeemed. You're, you've been removed, all your spiritual adultery has been removed. You're pure, you're undefiled, you're like a virgin, you're blameless and you're called, you're speaking the truth. You've been adopted, redeemed by his blood. No wonder John hears this roaring song. This loud, beautiful song of the redeemed. It speaks of the truth of who we are. That's what we need to do in the midst of all the world getting worse and worse and, and all the, everybody going after the beast. We would say, no, that's not who we are. Here's how we endure. By remembering who we are, by seeing Jesus, by speaking the truth of that because we've been made blameless. One of the the main ways that Jesus gave to us practically to remember is he gave us the gift of communion. In just a second, we're going to go ahead and receive that gift together. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and place your hope in him for the forgiveness of sins, no matter what your background is or if you're visiting here with us, we'd invite you to join together with us if your hope, your faith is in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. It's one of the ways that we remember Jesus, remember our champion, remember the one who leads us, remember whose we are, remember who you belong to. This is what we do with communion. We remember the truth. We tell ourselves what's true and no lies. In my place, condemned he stood is what we remember Seal my pardon with his blood is what we remember. 
He's redeemed us with his own life. He's stamped us. He's given us his seal. He's given us his name. We stand with him. We are secure in him. Our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. He's purified our lips. He's made us blameless. We've been set apart, sealed. All of this wonderful truths of what we remember. Why do we have things like this in, why do we have passages like this in Scripture? Because we need to. We need to remember whose we are. We need to remember how we belong to him and why we belong to him. Communion is how we remember and it's evidence, it's tangible evidence that we look at and we speak the song of the redeemed. As the ushers are making their way around, passing out the bread, I want you to see this, that your life is hidden with Christ on high. That's where it is. It's secure. Your name's been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is a remembrance of the fact that his body broken for you is your hope. His life is your hope for life. As we eat of the bread, it's us remembering our life, our very life comes from Jesus. Every day we need to remember whose we are. That we're in him and he in us. Every day we partake of the truth of Revelation 14. And so we remember by taking his body. Remember where our hope is. Our hope's not in our body, not in our blamelessness, not in our ability to pay for our sins. Our hope is in his ability to pay for our sins because he's done it. It's completed. And as we eat, we eat remembering that we belong to him. We're a part of him. So let's eat a cracker together, remembering his body. You may not feel blameless if you have placed your faith in Jesus, and I would guarantee that most days you wake up thinking of your blame. Revelation 14 been given to us to remember that we're redeemed. And how are we redeemed? I love that it's a picture of a lamb. It's a lamb that's been slain, but is slain no longer. A lamb who's been slain and yet he lives. He lives in all eternity. And the fact that he lives is testimony to the fact that his payment was made in full that the sacrifice was complete, that he fully atoned for our sins, that his blood has washed away our stink. His blood has, has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. His blood has removed the blame that we have. That's what we remember today. Let's drink the juice, remembering we rely on his blood. Go ahead and ask the band to come up, and we're going to close with a song before we dismiss there is a song from a few years ago that a group called the newsboys sang and i and i love the words they're talking about this they're trying to put into words this this song that john hears 
They're imagining it. And, and I, just bear with me the lyrics here. It's, it's, they say, it's the song of the redeemed rising from the African plain. It's the song of the forgiven drowning out the Amazon rain. The song of Asian believers filled with God's holy fire. It's every tribe, every tongue, every nation. A love song born of a grateful choir. It's all God's children singing glory, glory, hallelujah. He reigns, he reigns. Let it rise by the four winds, caught up in the heavenly sound. Let praises echo from the tower of cathedrals to the faithful gathered underground. Of all the songs sung from the dawn of creation, some were meant to persist. Of all the bells rung from a thousand steeples, none rings truer than this. It's all God's children singing glory, glory, hallelujah. And all the powers of darkness tremble at what they've just heard. Because all the powers of darkness can't drown out a single word. It's all God's children. When all God's children sing out, glory, glory, hallelujah, he reigns, he reigns. So with that in your heart, let's stand together and sing of redemption. Amen.